on Thursday, September 12th, 2019, the Soils Like Guelph Initiative of the University of Guelph, the Create Climate Smart Soils Graduate Program, and Grain Farmers of Ontario partnered to host a public lecture titled Regenerative Agriculture at General Mills, The Way Forward. The speaker, Steve Rosenzweig, is a soil scientist at General Mills, where he leads research and outreach programs across North America to support farmers in improving soil health. Steve started at General Mills in 2017 after receiving his PhD in soil science from Colorado State University, where he researched the effects of crop rotation on soil health and farmer profitability, the sociology of farmer decision-making, and used satellite imagery to map agricultural practices on the landscape scale. He now leverages his expertise in soil health and sociology to find win-win solutions for farmers and the environment. He seeks to drive adoption of regenerative farming systems within General Mills supply chains and measure the impacts on soil health, biodiversity, and farmer economic resilience. The talk was followed by a panel discussion moderated by Mike Buttonham of Grain Farmers of Ontario, the panelists included Steve Rosenzweig, Dan Petker, a farmer from Norfolk County, Ann Loeffler, a conservation specialist with Grand River Conservation Authority, Jim Barkley, an agronomist with Hensel District Co-op, and Paul Johnston, the farm products manager at Thompson Limited. We hope you enjoy the recording. Thanks for having me. This is great to be here. Um, so I'm Steve, and I'm going to talk about uh, what I do at General Mills, but also kind of what is driving the food industry farther and farther towards uh, investing in soil health and sustainability. Um, and if you have questions at any point, please just raise your hand. I'm going to go through a lot today. So um, really what I'm going to talk about is just a quick intro to myself. Um, I think I have some time with the students a little bit after we can dive more into um, sort of career path type stuff. Um, but I'm going to talk about, you know, why do food companies care about soil and sustainability? And then also um, how General Mills views regenerative agriculture as the key to a lot of the issues and, and things that we're trying to do um, on the landscape. And so uh, also talk about, you know, our specific programs and how we're trying to measure regeneration on the landscape. So quick, just a bit about me. I, I'm from upstate New York, so not too far from here, actually. Um, I did my undergrad degree just right on the other side of Lake Ontario in, uh, in western New York at SUNY Geneseo. Um, I mostly studied ecology there, uh, like lake ecology, stream ecology. Um, but then I got to do a program at Kansas State where I studied soil science uh, and looked at basically what happens when you abandon a wheat farm and let it restore back to the native tall grass prairie. Um, and what I found pretty much blew my mind and decided that I needed to go study soils and try to figure out how we can make improvements in our agricultural systems. Um, so, so I study soil carbon, microbiology, um, a bit about nutrient cycling and rhizosphere priming, um, but I'm, I'm really also interested in sociology and how farmers make decisions and leveraging that understanding to really drive adoption of these conservation behaviors. Um, and also do some work around satellite imagery. We can do a lot with satellite imagery, which I'll talk a bit about, just kind of mapping adoption and seeing how agricultural practices are changing on the landscape. Um, so I've been at General Mills for about a, uh, one and a half years, um, and I'm also interested in music and photography and some other stuff, so. So first, uh, why do food companies care about soil and sustainability? First, I'd say um, General Mills is probably leading in this space, so a lot of what I'm gonna talk about is really sort of tip of the spear type stuff, but hopefully, if we do this successfully, I think a lot of the other food industry 
um, will start to follow suit. So uh, hopefully this is sort of a leading indicator of things to come. Um, but you can already see lots of other companies are, are starting to invest in this space and starting to get interested. Um, and really, you know, this is, uh, this is just my perspective on, on why it's happening, but it's really two major reasons. Uh, one is that our key stakeholders um, see that soil health and regenerative ag really have the promise to deliver huge social and environmental benefits. Um, and, and probably the more important reason is that our existence as a species um, and as a food company uh, ha actually requires that we care for the way our, our food is being grown and the people who grow it. So um, first I'll just give a snapshot of, of some of who, who are the stakeholders for food, uh, the food industry. Who are the people that we really pay attention to? Um, who do we like really care about their opinions? Um, so it's, it's mostly these four groups, so activists. Activists are groups that are you know, small in, in numbers but very large in, in, um, in impact. And so, you know, activists, if, if, if you're a food company, you don't have a lot of data or information about who and, and how your food is being grown. Um, activists will find out and you'll hear about it on the news that way. So it, it's really activist um, pressure has caused food companies to really be proactive in how we um, start to understand what's happening in our supply chains and also how we, we interact to, to make change on the landscape. Um, second is customers. So customers are, are groups like, uh, you know, when I think about the food customers for food companies, it's retailers like Walmart, um, school, uh, schools for like school lunches and stuff like that. We have all these different types of customers that we sell to. Um, and I'll give a, just a quick example of, of something that's happened recently in, in the customer space that's driving some of this change. So uh, Walmart. So if you are selling to Walmart, which is pretty much everybody, um, they've, they've asked that they want their suppliers to eliminate a gigaton of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, and so, you know, this is something that was announced to all of the suppliers. So all of our competitors now are aware that Walmart wants this. We do reporting to Walmart of how we're advancing towards this goal. And things like this can help create some competition for shelf space based on some environmental performance. Um, so, so examples like this are ways that customers have a huge impact on the food industry. And General Mills was, I think, the first food company to come out with a scope three greenhouse gas emissions reduction goal. Uh, this was back in 2015. Um, and so we basically had a third party uh, uh, group come in and do an audit of our entire greenhouse gas footprint. Everything from you know, the fertilizers that go into the agricultural production all the way through um, you know, the transformation of that product, uh, packaging, supply chain, manufacturing, so our buildings. Uh, shipping, selling, consuming, so like the, the energy it takes to refrigerate and cook food, all the way down to the landfill, so after the food is, is um, past the consumer. All of those emissions um, we got audited on and we basically said, what does Mother Nature require of us at this time? And they said, we have to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint by 28% um, by 2025. And so, uh, you know, General Mills looked at this footprint back in 2015 and realized half of it is in agriculture. And so we could shutter all of our doors on every facility that we own. Uh, we could buy 100% renewable energy for all the energy we use, and still we'd only be 10% uh, of our footprint there. So we really had to look outside of our four walls to, um, to upstream and downstream and figure out how we can make big changes in this area. And this is a big reason why I was hired as a soil scientist was basically to figure out how do we sequester carbon in soils, how do we reduce emissions in our agricultural supply chains to drive this down. Um, so yeah, we have, we have sustainability goals. Um, 
so investors, this is another uh, stakeholder of, of a food company. Um, and there's a growing pool of green investor dollars, so like impact investors that want to make not only an economic return when they invest their money, but also a social return. And so there's a lot of um, data that's required to um, basically prove that you are a company that is uh, making a positive impact. Uh, and so, um, so you know, being named to sustainability indices like this is really important for, um, for companies to try to capture that growing pool of green dollars. It takes a lot of effort and, uh, and data and analysis to, to do that. And lastly, consumers. So the people that actually eat the products at the end of the day. Um, there's, there's trends in con consumers, at, uh, their preferences and beliefs uh, as well. And so this is from the Hartman group. They, they do a, a study of consumers um, and how they react to sustainability. Uh, and I'm just highlighting here a couple of the, a couple of the um, categories that have really jumped up in recent years. You can see uh, natural agricultural methods and practices, um, supports local economy, conserves natural habitats, um, and minimizing pollution of air, water, and soil. So see, these are some of the, um, some of the categories that are, are really jumping in, um, in interest among consumers. And so, so we're responding to those sorts of trends as well. Um, and please stop me if you have any questions. Um, and so this is actually what I think is, is the actual driving force of a lot of this. Um, just being at General Mills and seeing uh, what motivates our team to, to get up and do this work every day. It's really that, you know, we realize that um, this is just critical time for engaging in this space and, and making progress in agriculture. Uh, and here's some of the trends that we see and that, and that concern us. Um, declining topsoil. So this is, a, this is a photo my friend took. She's a professor at University of Nebraska. But she was driving through Iowa, and they have a rest stop showing the average depth of topsoil in that county um, going back to 1850. And so you know, this is happening all over the place. And the trends in soil loss are, are unsustainable. And she's out there saying, where are we going to be in 2050? Right? So how are we? Uh, we really have to reverse this trend if we're going to try to make, um, if we're going to have a stable and secure agricultural supply chain in the future. This is the global greenhouse gas footprint of agriculture. And so you can see it's been going up pretty steadily every year. Um, this dotted line going up is where we're going to be if we don't make any changes. But the dotted line going down is where we have to get agricultural greenhouse gas emissions to be to avoid some of the worst effects of climate change. Um, and so you can tell we're not even on the right uh, trajectory at the moment. We really have a lot, to work, uh, a lot of work to do in this space. A biodiversity loss. So, you know, there's a big report recently showing that a million species are at risk of extinction, and they call out agriculture as one of the big drivers of that. And so when we compare our um, native systems and, uh, you know, the agricultural systems that have replaced them, um, really ag systems don't support that level of biodiversity. And that's a big, uh, that's having a huge impact on the things that live in these ecosystems. And lastly, the, the farm economy. So this is, uh, this is a graph of the Canadian farm economy with agricultural uh, subsidies subtracted. Uh, so keep that in mind. But this, this top blue line is gross farm revenue. So the total amount of money that farmers are bringing in every year. And you can see it's been going up pretty steadily. Uh, and that's because farmers are producing more food than they ever have before. There's more money coming into agriculture than ever before just because of the overall amount of food that farmers are producing. But if you look at the green bar down below, that's net farm income, the actual amount of money that farmers get to keep at the end of the day. Um, and that is not going up. And so what's happening is really that farming is becoming so expensive 
and farmers are under pressure economically. Um, and so what I think is, is really gonna have to happen is that we can maintain productivity while reducing how expensive it is to grow food. So I'm gonna stop there and see if there's any questions on, on anything for the moment. Um, yeah, sure. So it's, it's everything from, um, I believe what's captured is, is upstream, so like the energy it takes to make the products that farmers then buy and, and use on their farm, all the way to diesel use in tractors, um, and shipping it to you know, the elevator and then the elevator's operations. So you'll see like there's transformation is called out there. Um, so, so when we buy ingredients, a lot of times it's already like milled flour, so it's all the energy that goes into milling it. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's captured here as well, um, but, uh, but it's largely, you know, the biggest piece of that impact is what's happening on the farm. And we're half a dairy company as well, so we own like Yoplait, Haagen-Dazs globally, um, except for in America, um, which is owned by Nestle. We license it to Nestle in the U.S. Um, so it's all the methane, it's all the uh, energy it takes to run a dairy essentially as well. Um, there's a lot of stuff captured in there. Any other questions? Okay, um, so I'll talk a little bit about you know why why re we see regenerative ag as the, as the solution to a lot of those issues that we're facing, um, and I do want to talk about agriculture broadly because it is a, a big diverse kind of wonky movement that's all happening on the landscape. Um, but first, I want to just t uh, talk a little bit about General Mills' position, um, and our definition is that regenerative ag intentionally enhances, uh, protects, and intentionally enhances natural resources in farming communities. And um, you know, there's a, it's really important too to call out that we're taking an outcomes-based definition of regenerative ag. So um, you are regenerative if you're improving soil health, biodiversity, and farming economic resilience. And that's really different to how um, a lot of other folks talk about um, trends in sustainability. They wanna be able to say like, this is a checklist of practices. If you do these things, then you are sustainable, for example. That's how we talked about sustainability. But the shift in focus on outcomes um, really is like, we gotta regenerate at by any means necessary. And so um, this has a lot of implications for science because it, we have to now measure all this stuff. Uh, and so a lot of what I do is try to figure out how we measure soil health, biodiversity, and farmer economic resilience um, across huge swaths of land. And so I'll talk about that a bit. But first I wanna kind of uh, you know back up a bit and talk a little bit about what regenerative ag is. Um, and first of all, it's a mindset. It's just a different way of thinking about agriculture. You can really think about it as a management philosophy. Um, and the current paradigm in agriculture is really about the, the farm is a machine that we need to make more efficient, right? We need to tweak our seeding rates, fertilizer rates. Um, you know, this is really around precision, making sure that we're doing as little bad as we possibly can. And to a large extent, we've become really efficient in agriculture, as efficient as we can be utilizing these things. But at the same time, there are a lot of these other issues that I just talked about that, that this paradigm cannot address. No matter how, how much resources we put into doing this, we can't really address those other problems. And what regenerative ag really is looking to do is to change the, the paradigm. And so the new paradigm is really that the, it's, the farm is not a machine, but it's really an ecosystem that we can restore. Um, and so it's all about maximizing the connections between the components of this ecosystem to achieve real success in ag. And I'll talk about what that looks like. Um, but really, you know, from a farmer's lens, 
these are, these are challenges they see every day. Pests, weeds, diseases, nutrient deficiencies, even uh, droughts and floods to some extent. Um, regenerative farmers see these things really as symptoms of an unhealthy ecosystem. So instead of trying to try to manage all of these uh, symptoms, th their goal is really to try to solve the root cause of these issues, which is that the ecosystem is unhealthy. And that's how regenerative farmers see this. And there's five ways to do this. Um, I probably don't need to go into too much detail about this. I mean, this is everywhere. These regenerative principles are pretty well accepted that this is the way you restore farm ecosystems, is minimize soil disturbance. There's an interesting debate going on right now about whether that includes chemical disturbance. And so, you know, traditionally when we talk about minimizing disturbance, we talk about reducing or eliminating tillage. Um, there's a lot of folks that say this should also include fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, these other chemical disturbances to, um, to the ecosystem. Um, so I actually tend to lean in that way, and I'll talk a little bit about some recent research that uh, suggests we have to think harder about the unintended consequences of some of those things. Um, but maximize crop diversity, this is really how you can defend yourself naturally against weeds, pests, diseases, those sorts of things. Um, keep the soil covered, you know, protecting it from wind and rain, this is really how you uh, keep soil in the field, and you have to keep it in the field if you want to have any chance of making it better. Um, keep a living root in the ground, so this one is actually the most important because the soil is a living ecosystem and living things need to eat in order to survive and they eat carbon and that carbon comes from uh, roots, basically roots and, and the stuff that roots spit out, these exudates. This is a picture of a root spitting out that carbon, uh, those sugars below ground. Um, and so, you know, if, if you think about most of our agricultural crops, they only grow for a certain part of the year and then we have all these windows in the spring, in the fall. Uh, sometimes in the summer, depending on your region, that, that there's no crop growing. And so that's no food going into the soil. And so by trying to fill up every single window of time, by taking advantage of every ray of sunlight and turning it into a green living plant, that's how we feed the ecosystem and, and, and keep that soil healthy. The last one is to integrate livestock. Um, and so if you think about where most of where we farm today, uh, you know, I, I'm in the Great Plains, and that used to be a grassland. And so Grasslands evolved for thousands of years with huge herds of bison migrating through and uh, eating everything and depositing dung and urine on the landscape. When we replicate that with the way we manage livestock in really intensive, um, packed, dense herds and move them frequently and let uh, the vegetation rest for long periods of time, um, that's really how we accelerate this regeneration process. And so just a couple pictures. So I, you know, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, this is what I see in maybe 95, 99% of fields driving around throughout North Dakota, Minnesota, Manitoba, um, South Dakota, throughout the Midwest. This is like everywhere. Um, and so thinking about the principles, what do you see or, or what do you see that's missing uh, here? Yeah, no, so there's no green stuff. There's no living uh, plant. So no living roots. No livestock. There's no livestock, right? No residue, right, so you see lots of bare soil, so there's no soil cover. No, yeah, so there's no windbreaks, there's no kind of uh, conservation practices happening out here either. Yeah, so you see big clumpy uh, clods of soil, that tells me that this soil has been highly disturbed by some pretty intensive tillage. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much all the principles, no diversity is the last one. So. Yeah, um, pretty much none of the principles are represented there, and this is most of our agriculture. 
um, today. Is this field organic or conventional? Yeah, there's no way to tell, right? And so um, General Mills is the second largest organic food company in North America, at least. I'm not sure about the world, but um, you know, we, we need to have a strategy that can improve both organic and conventional farmland, right? We can't go to have a strategy for our organic supply chain and our conventional supply chain. Those conversations really have to be the same. And it, these regenerative principles can be applied to any farm, no matter who you are. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is our strategy for really lifting all boats at the same time. Uh, is it regenerative? I think we'd all agree probably not. Um, this is what uh, the field could look like. This is in North Dakota in, in November. Um, I took this picture. This is a diverse cover crop mix growing. Uh, it's not, you know, he's not going to harvest this. It's just really there to feed the soil, to provide diversity, to keep the soil covered. Um, and so even in November in North Dakota, you can have a green living plant uh, pumping carbon out below ground. Um, and uh, so actually you can see, you can see these kind of black lines running all the way up into the horizon there. These, these black crops are faba beans. And so this farmer is gonna plant his soybeans next year right into those faba bean rows. And because they're black, they actually warm up a lot faster in the spring. And so a lot of farmers are concerned with cover crops and not tilling that the soil is not gonna warm up as fast because that black soil collects a lot of sunlight, really warms it up. He's doing that with a plant. And so he, he'll eliminate that yield drag um, with that kind of black decomposing plant. And so there's a lot of ways we can use nature to our benefit. Um, and so he's, he doesn't have to till at all in this field. Yep. Yeah, so he had, uh, he had cereal rye that he harvested, actually. So he harvested this in August. And then he followed the combine with the planter in August. So this is about, um, I guess, like three, almost three months of growth, two, three months of growth. So that's really the key is getting it in as fast as you can. Yep. What method did he use to cultivate that crop? To, well, so he harvested, oh, this crop here. Um, so a lot of these species will winter kill. Um, he let the rye that he harvested volunteer, and then he'll probably spray glyphosate in the, in the spring after he plants his soybeans directly into it. I'll show actually a picture of that. So here's a corn canopy, pretty typical. None of the principles are there. This is that same farmer uh, in his corn canopy. He's got this diverse mix of rye growing. Um, you know, if, so if, to answer your question, to, if you didn't want to spray this, um, and there's really not a lot of rye here, so I'm not sure if you did have to terminate it in the spring or not, but there are most, you know, a lot of cover crops will just winter kill, so you don't have to really terminate it at all um, if you don't want to. But for example, this, this practice, so this rye, you can see he established it underneath the corn canopy. Uh, he's a no-till farmer, so you can see lots of the previous year's crop residue covering the soil surface. Um, and so this is a diverse mix. There's winter camelina in there that, as well that will overwinter. But the following year, he'll plant soybeans right into this mat of living rye, and this is what it looks like on the right. So it'll survive the winter, grow up again in the spring. Um, you know, I don't think he uses a, ro a roller crimper, but you can use a roller crimper if you don't want to spray anything um, and plant soybeans right into it. And what's interesting about rye is it's got these allelopathic effects, meaning no plants can grow where the rye has been because it's exuded these chemicals that prevent plant growth. But soybeans love to germinate through that mat of residue. So he doesn't have to do any weed control that rye is doing it for him. He's probably gonna get a soybean yield increase and he's cut out all of his weed control expenses 
um, and he's sequestered all that carbon and uh, yeah, covered the soil, done great things. So um, lots of interesting practices that we're looking at. And you know, with this one practice, he's hitting a lot of different principles. So um, these are some of the other kind of interesting practices that, that we look a lot at. Uh, intercropping, so growing multiple crops in the same field at the same time, harvesting them together, separating them out later. Uh, having livestock graze your fall cover crops. So he could have, you know, he could have grazed that, that cover crop in the fall and gotten an economic return from it. Uh, Biostrip till, which I talked about, that, that black strip that warms up the soil. Okay, um, any questions about the principles? It's, it's, you know, if you did like a thermometer test, it's probably only a couple degrees difference, but relative, relative to tillage, it's only a couple degrees difference, but relative to this green, where the green stuff is, it's like, can be like five to eight degrees difference, which is pretty big. Uh, sorry, Fahrenheit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not sure what that would be. Yeah, if anyone knows that conversion, so. Um, any other questions? Okay, so how does regenerative ag work? What is like the theory behind this? Um, really, it works by restoring these broken ecosystem processes. Really, we're trying to make this ecosystem better. Um, so there's lots of things in lots of these processes in agriculture that are pretty broken today. That's hold. That's the, the theory is that these these cycles are really holding farmers back uh, from real success. And so I did my PhD in Colorado, where they only got 12 to 16 inches of rain a year. And even, that's almost a desert, and so even there, after a rain, you drive around, and you see big ponds of water in the middle of farmers' fields, none of it actually infiltrating into the soil. And so, um, you know, even if, it's, even if it's just rained, farmers are seeing drought symptoms. And so, uh, you know, we really have to get water back into the soil. And with climate change, we're seeing even, uh, you know, less frequent but more intensive rain events, so you're getting more rain at, at one time. Um, and we have to have resilient soils if we're gonna, if we're gonna actually cope with those sorts of uh, climate changes. So, um, you know, regenerative systems are able to infiltrate massive amounts of water. Um, so some of the numbers that farmers are seeing on their own farms is, is incredible, the, the potential we have to change the water cycle. The nutrient cycle, right? So this is the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you know, this is basically from um, nutrients running off farms into the Mississippi River down into the Gulf. Uh, this is evidence of a broken nutrient cycle. And, you know, um, a lot of the conversation that ag today is about the four R's, right rate, right source, right time, right place of fertilizer application. These things are super important and every farmer should be doing them. Um, and they have, you know, they're kind of the low hanging fruit in, in improving the nutrient efficiency. But uh, it's not really until you get into these systems level changes that you can actually start to fix that nutrient cycle and retain large quantities of nutrients in your system. So like diversified crop rotation, cover crops, um, deriving more of your nitrogen from an organic nitrogen source like, like a legume or, or deriving more of your nitrogen from organic matter, which requires having a microbial population that can cycle those nutrients. That's really how you, you achieve huge efficiency gains in, and, and retention of your nutrients on farms. Um, I talked a little bit before about this debate uh, between like should, should minimizing disturbance include chemical disturbance. Um, you know, we, we can restore our, our, 
our ecosystem and to, that can you know, really start to solve some of our pest and disease issues for us. So um, this is a study just looking at corn pests uh, in, in the upper uh, northern Great Plains. And they found you know, conventional farms that were using a lot of tillage, no, no diversity in the system, uh, but were using insecticides. They actually had more pests, 10 times more pests than the regenerative systems did um, that weren't using insecticides and, and had diversity. Um, and so why did the regenerative systems not have pests? It's because they had diversity and predators. And so um, really, this is how they're, they're able to control pests without actually paying for uh, insecticides. Yep. Were those pest differences like economically? No, so actually, that's interesting. Yeah, so none of these reached the economic threshold. But these folks didn't pay for insecticide. So um, in this case, yeah, none of the pest levels were above an economic threshold. Another interesting study is over here, which is showing, um, you know, there's, there's a microbial system living on plants, so like on the vegetation, um, bacteria, fungi, and they actually help protect plants against diseases. And this was a greenhouse study with tomatoes, basically finding that, you know, when they applied fertilizer, it, it abolished that microbial-mediated protection of the plant. So there's, you know, there's potentially some impacts of fertilizer on, on disease uh, uh, plants' ability to protect themselves against disease. So there's all these sorts of um, cascading effects with everything we do in agriculture, and I think we have to really understand a lot more uh, what some of those effects might be. Carbon and entry cycle, right? This is an example of a broken carbon cycle. Uh, there's no carbon going into that system. Uh, we can restore that. That's also the way we're going to get greenhouse gas emissions to where they need to be. Um, I was going to talk a bit about... Um, just how our view on, on how carbon is sequestered in soil has changed um, recently. And um, I don't have too much time to do this, but basically um, I'll, sk I'll skip to the punchline, which is that you know, greater, uh, basically greater diversity of, um, of crops contributes to carbon sequestration. Uh, and that's really through microbes. So microbes are really what are, are leading to carbon sequestration. They're, they're dead bodies and they're um, the products that they the exude into the soil. Those are the things that are preferentially sequestered for long periods of time. So you need microbes and you need root exudates to, to actually sequester carbon. So these things are derived from life. You need living stuff in your, on your farm to actually sequester carbon. Um, and that's just come about recently. You could, we can talk about that a bit later if there's questions. And aggregation is also how carbon is sequestered. Yeah, so, th so the punchline is basically we need greater diversity of plants growing more time throughout the year and a healthy, healthier soil microbial population. That's really the only way we're going to sequester enough carbon to meet goals like these. So just to summarize quick, how does regenerative ag work? It, it works by restoring these ecosystem processes. Uh, any questions before we talk about what we're doing at General Mills? Cool. Um, so, so yeah. So I mean, these are these are some of the reasons. These are some of the things that that folks at General Mills were thinking about when they decided to to make a regenerative agriculture ambition. Um, and so, regenerative ag. We just announced earlier this year that we're going to advance regenerative agriculture on one million acres by 2030. Um, and so this is largely what I work on. And there's really no um, there's no blueprint for how food companies can engage with their supply chain to drive this kind of change. And so this is what we're really trying to figure out now in real time, is how do we, how do, we do this? And so um, this year we launched what we're calling the regenerative oat pilot. Uh, this is mostly in our oat supply chain, which is in North Dakota, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. 
So we spend a lot of time up in Canada here. Um, and you know what we were seeing with the farmers we were working with in this region was really, they were like, okay, how do I actually grow a cover crop, right? We have such a, a short window of time between when we harvest and when it snows. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot about the how, like how do I do this? How do I reduce tillage without hurting my yields? How do I do all these things? Um, and so, you know, farmers would go to conferences, like soil health conferences, regenerative ag conferences, get all psyched up to go home and, and do something. You know, they, they really believe in the power of soil health, regenerative ag, but they go home and then they don't actually change anything on their farm. And so what we really wanted to do was to pair farmers up with somebody that's gonna be like, go back home with them and say, okay, what are we gonna do this year? You know, like a consultant, a coach that can help them implement change. Uh, so really what this program is, is we've partnered with our grain suppliers. Um, so bringing farmers to the table and repairing farmers up one-on-one -on -one with a regenerative agriculture coach uh, from Understanding Ag, which is a company started by Gabe Brown, um, who is a big uh, regenerative ag influencer, farmer and rancher in North Dakota. They have consultants uh, throughout Canada and the US. Um, and so it's really, you know, we're pairing farmers up one-on-one -on -one with a coach for three years, like they get this free coaching service, um, and they're developing and implementing a three-plus-year uh, regenerative management plan. And so we kicked it off this winter. Uh, we had a Soil Health Academy, which is a multiple-day workshop to really try to deprogram the conventional mindset and to reprogram with this regenerative mindset. Um, and we were hoping to get maybe 50 farmers show up, and we ended up with 150. Um, and so... Uh, we really only had enough money to support 45, plus it's a pilot. We're just trying to learn about if this works. Um, so out of that 150, we selected 45 farms uh, to receive this coaching. So this is where they're at. Uh, both organic and conventional farmers. So a lot of, if you eat like Cheerios or Nature Valley, this is where a lot of the oats comes from. Uh, Cascadian Farm, uh, organic, this is where that comes from as well. Um, so, so yeah, so all these farmers are starting to implement changes this year on their farm. Uh, we've got a Facebook group for them. You know, this, the idea is really that all these farmers are trying out different things. They're seeing what works, what doesn't work. They're all on different, uh, you know, they're, they're all on different uh, parts of this journey. Um, but there's a lot of knowledge sharing going on, pictures, um, people trying to figure out how to intercrop, how to do this sort of stuff. So we're really trying to build this community. Um, I guess one thing that we really found this year is that we've over-engaged that 10% of innovators. Like the 10% of farmers that are like totally bought in, they're gonna do this no matter what. We really oversampled that group in the 45 farmers that we selected. Um, and in part, I think it's because the, the project is really intensive. Like we're trying to engage farmers in holistic systems level change. And there's only a select group of farmers that's gonna be interested in that. And so one thing we realized is we really need to have an on-ramp for farmers. We need to make it easier for farmers to take that first step down this path. And this is a pyramid of sort of what we have going on today uh, with sort of a gap here in the middle. So we, we do have large numbers of farmers engaged in sustainability programs. So like um, Field to Market, the Canadian Field Print Initiative. Uh, these programs are really just designed to collect uh, farmer practice information. So like you know, how much tillage are you doing? What, you know, what about this, what about that? And we model their economic outcomes. So we're not actually, you know, other than the data that we provide back to them, they don't really get anything. There's not a lot of dialogue between, we're not actually asking them to change anything. Um, so we have a lot of farmers in these programs. 
with this low level of engagement. And then we have this small number of farmers in this regenerative ag program that are highly engaged with this really high touch point coaching type model. Um, but we're missing sort of an on-ramp to get these farmers um, kind of trying out new things. And so um, we're, also, we're also trying out some different on-ramps for farmers. So um, working with, in Saskatchewan, working with this independent agronomist uh, group, which is Shark Ag Consulting. They're made of, of just like oat farmers that uh, decided to start an agronomy consulting business. Um, and we're doing, uh, and also in the States, we're working with Soil Health Partnership and uh, in Manitoba, working with the University of Manitoba, and, and all these projects are basically uh, on-farm experimentation. And so either we're cost-sharing with farmers um, to try this stuff, or we're doing research uh, for the farmer on this stuff. Um, and so if, you know, if a farmer in our supply chain wants to try intercropping or cover crops or no-till or whatever, um, we're gonna try to help them do that or get some value out of, out of that experiment. Uh, any questions before I talk about um, measurements and like how we're collecting data and, and tracking if any of this works? Yeah. I'm curious how you're capturing the challenges that farmers are coming across and across their activities. How much equipment modification is required? Yeah. Um, so how we're tracking the challenges that farmers face. I guess it's more informal. So we have like once a year. Um, once a year we have uh, farmer meetings and all the farmers that are engaged in that like field to market or Canadian field print initiative programs, like we'll have a meeting and kind of just talk with the farmer and we'll share some outputs of like research we've funded or, um, or if there's something going on in their area, we'll um, kind of make them aware of it. And, and it's just really just informal discussion with farmers and asking them, what have you been trying? I mean, the soil health conversation is so new that like, We've really only had these conversations with farmers for the last like year or two. Before that, it was really just about you know efficiencies, like how are you going to improve nitrogen use efficiency, stuff like that. So we're still trying to learn a lot of what those pain points are. Uh, we do have a a uh, a grant in right now to study kind of this mental model of, of what we have going on. We're launching a similar program in Kansas with all these pieces in our wheat supply chain, and we have a grant with a bunch of so social science social scientists to like interview the farmers, do a survey of the broader farming population, see like who is signing up for these things relative to the broader farming group, like what their beliefs, perceptions about soil health are, and then kind of track them over time to see like, are these programs actually effective in meeting their needs, like, you know, addressing the gaps that they have uh, for moving farther down this path. So we have a lot more work to do in figuring out how to be effective in this. Well, it's iterative. So um, these pilots, like we're learning so much, and this, like, this is the how we just this year. I mean, like a month ago, we really identified this on ramp as a gap, and so it's just going to be iterative. Like we're just going to keep trying these things, seeing if they work. Um, you know, it's it's really this kind of model that we're sticking with at the moment, and I don't really know where it's going to go until we get learnings based on this. So it's got to be constantly evolving and seeing if the farmers are are changing. Yes, there are, and so that's um, so I think that's largely who we're engaging currently in the programs is the, like the ones that are already totally bought in and figuring out how to do it. 
the important thing about that group of people is, um, you know, the questions that everybody else has, the other 90% of farmers is like, how do I do it or why would I want to do that? And this 10% of farmers we think that are actually doing it now, we have to learn from them and like learn with them so that we can transfer that knowledge to these other groups um, through like shared field days and um, you know publications and ag uh, magazine articles, stuff like that. Like we need to use them as case studies, as success studies or failure studies. So we can say like, this is how, this is how to do this. Um, this is why you would want to do this. We're using them as case studies uh, really to get the message out broader. In the back, yeah. Yeah, so we just had a meeting in Kansas. So we're like, we're launching this program in Kansas. We had NRCS, Kansas State, um, uh, Kansas Department of Health and Environment, kind of all these other groups that are really interested in seeing these sorts of changes in the room together. And we shared out what our plans are, how we might connect. So we're really trying to do that. Um, that's a huge piece of this is like, you know, we have a tiny team at General Mills that's working on this and we have, you know, a limited budget. So we really have to combine forces if we're gonna have an impact. Um, so I, yeah, so I'll talk about that a bit um, now, so about how we're measuring stuff. And um, really I'd say we're, you know, we don't, the, the number one question that I get from farmers and from non-farmers too is like, are you gonna pay farmers more to do this stuff? And I'd say like at the same time that we have, like we're trying to bring farmers along on a journey, we're trying to bring consumers along on a journey. We have a whole team of people working with like, you know, wh what, do con what do consumers know about any of this stuff? And how do you talk about any of this with consumers? Because we're gonna ask them to pay more for it, like they have to know what they're paying for. Um, and so I think what we found to date is that regenerative ag is a solution to a problem that consumers don't know exists. Uh, so we have a ton of education to do until we can get the whole system to sort of pull this along. Um, but my last slide is also about kind of a, a, an extra, you know, if we don't figure out the consumer piece, another way that we could put money in farmers' pockets to do this. So I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later. Okay, so how do we measure regeneration? This is what I think a lot about because ultimately what we're trying to do with all this is have an impact in these three areas, soil health, biodiversity, and farmer economic resilience. Um, so we we're using the, this regenerative oat pilot, now the regenerative uh, wheat pilot in Kansas, I guess, um, as a way of, of uh, testing out and piloting these scalable strategies for measuring these outcomes. Uh, so for, we've asked each of those farmers in the program to dedicate one study field that we're going to look at all this different soil health, all these different soil health tests on. Um, we're looking at meter deep soil carbon, so like we're trying to get a really good sense of how much carbon sequestration is happening or carbon loss. Like one thing we're finding in the soil science world is like soil scientists are only looking 30 centimeters deep. It turns out we're losing tons of carbon below that. We need to capture the whole the whole picture when we're looking at carbon sequestration. Um, uh, aggregate stability, so all these different metrics of soil health, we're gonna be tracking as these farmers change their practices, how do these different things change uh, over time? Uh, possible scaling solutions for looking at carp, uh, soil change across huge swaths of land is, is satellite imagery. And so, you know, through satellites we can detect cover crops, uh, no-till, reduced till, uh, conventional till, we can tell uh, crop rotations, uh, all this different stuff we can now see from space, basically. 
and we can kind of track how many acres are doing these different things. And using what the satellites see as inputs for soil models to be able to say, is this soil sequestering carbon or losing carbon? How much? Um, just to kind of get a sense of directionality, like are we making these soils better or not? Um, so that's one thing we're working on. Also, these rapidly deployable in-field soil health tests are becoming uh, more common. So there's actually an app called Slakes where basically you, you take a couple aggregates, um, you put them in a little Petri dish, you can do this in the field, um, and it basically just kind of measures how much, uh, how much of that aggregate dissolves, and that's a good measure of aggregate stability. And so it can actually be relatively comparable to lab tests. So these rapidly uh, deployable means of measuring soil health in the field are also something we're looking at. Uh, so biodiversity. So, um, you know, when I first was thinking about like what, you know, we, okay, we're like, we know biodiversity is important, but like what types of biodiversity? Are we talking about like plants, animals, um, you know, mammals, insects, birds? Um, and so really what we settled on was insects and birds because sort of the theory is if you can, we know insects respond to reductions in like chemical use, but also minimizing like soil disturbance, tillage, uh, they respond to diversity, they respond to vegetation in the field. So we're like, okay, we have a good chance of bringing back a lot of insect diversity through regenerative ag. And what do birds eat? They eat insects. And so if we bring the insects back, theoretically we can bring birds back as well. Um, I'd say it's a relatively untested hypothesis to date in the literature. So we'll, we'll see if this is true or not. But um, what we're doing is uh, taking really intensive insect and bird surveys on these farms. We had a wildlife ecologist out there looking at all the different birds that are living in these fields um, and around the fields as well. They found 200 different types of bird species this year in and around these 45 farm fields. Um, and we're also doing pretty intensive insect collections and we'll see how these things change over time as farmers start to implement these regenerative practices. Uh, scaling for biodiversity is really interesting. Um, so there's, there's a company that we just piloted some technology with this year where they, they have these cameras and theoretically at some point they'll be mobile uh, where you can put on a tractor or something. And coupling that with machine learning and artificial intelligence based on, the, based on what the camera is seeing from the shininess, the color, and the movement and the wing beat frequency of different insects, they can group them into either species or different morphotypes so that we can get a sense of, you know, you just drive a tractor through a field with this camera on it and we'll be able to know uh, what, bi what insects are out there, how much, um, so get a good sense of your insect biodiversity. Um, we're also interested in some farm, like having farmers do this sort of work um, and learning from what the farmers are seeing on their own farms to, to scale some of this stuff. Um, and bird radar, we don't know a lot about that, but we're looking into it. Um, on the economics piece, we have farmers entering for, one of the, for their study field, um, all, basically everything that's happening on that field, uh, they're entering their information and how much it costs and their yields. So we're gonna be tracking profitability and how these regenerative practices are changing uh, input use and, and yields and profitability. Uh, supply chain resilience, I, I don't really have a good plan for this yet, but similarly, I think satellite imagery will be the key, the key. but ultimately we wanna be able to, you know, we're a food company and we know that when there's a drought in one of our key sourcing regions, we either have to go buy it from a more expensive region or we have to lose out on quality and all of that stuff hits our bottom line at some point. Uh, I wanna be able to make the case you know, to the, to the business and say like regenerative ag can actually, especially in these bad years, you know, this is sort of the theory about how regenerative ag works is it improves yield stability. 
And so in the bad years, how much money is regenerative ag actually saving us? I think this would be a really important data point for the food industry as a whole. Um, so we're still trying to figure that out. And, and lastly, if you talk to any regenerative farmer, they swear that the nutrient density of their crop is going up. That the food that they produce on their farm is healthier than their neighbors. Um, and there's no data about this yet, um, but we're gonna, every time oats pops up in the rotation, we're gonna be uh, grabbing a sample and, and running it for uh, different nutrient uh, pr parameters and characteristics. And at the same time, we're also looking at in the range of oats that are out there across geographies, across varieties, are the differences in these actual like nutrient parameters, are they medically relevant? Like if we can theoretically change it through regenerative ag, does that have an imp impact on like human uh, health? So, so we're doing some of that research as well. And we have a strategy for scaling that too. We're doing a lot of university research in tandem, so about um, you know, partnerships. We have a bunch of projects going on with the University of Manitoba, trying to fill in some of the key research gaps that we can't do all on farm. So we've got some long-term research studies going on. We've got some greenhouse gas monitoring going on um, and some, some graduate student work to, to come alongside these regenerative farmers and see like you know, in the spring is our cover crops and no-till affecting your soil temperature and soil moisture, some of those questions that farmers have. And so I mentioned before that, you know, in the event that we can't get consumers to come on board and actually want to pay for some of this stuff, um, we are part of the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium, which is this group of food companies and uh, scientists, and we've all come together and we're trying to stand up an ecosystem services market in the US to basically pay farmers for sequestering carbon, um, for improving water quality, and for reducing the quantity of water. Those are the three different assets that farmers can generate that would, they would get paid for. Um, and so the failure of every ecosystem service market to date has been because by the time you measure and verify that that service is actually being provided, there's no money left over to pay anybody. It's so expensive to measure that stuff that, that there's, it just takes up all the money in the market. And so we're doing this three-year research project to figure out how we bring down the cost of measuring and verifying that those services are being provided so that we can do it really cheaply and actually pay, have a viable market. Um, so that's, that's one thing we're, we're really working on. Uh, and that market will launch in 2022 uh, if all goes well. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is really all about, you know, putting money in the farmer's pockets for providing these sorts of services. So, um, uh, one last thing, I, I'd like to give a plug for Twitter. Uh, Ag Twitter is awesome, and it's really how I know uh, a lot of what I know today um, about new things in agriculture. There's a lot of innovative farmers on there. Um, and so this is just a start of some people to follow in hashtags, like intercrop innovators is such a great hashtag to look at every once in a while because of all the crazy stuff that intercroppers are doing, especially in Saskatchewan. Um, so yeah, so I, I just give a plug for that if you wanna stay on top of what all the crazy uh, innovative folks are doing. And that's it. Oh, sure, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'll end on this one. Thank you. Yeah. Are there any questions? Yep, in the back. Yeah, just, um, thanks for your perspective on, on kind of what your company's doing. I'm just thinking, you mentioned several geographic areas in North America. You didn't talk too much about what's going on here in Ontario. I'm wondering if you could give us some perspective on the types of products that your company purchases from farmers that is only 
Yeah. Yeah. So the question was, uh, what does General Mills buy, uh, if anything, from Ontario, and what what kinds of things would we be looking for from farmers in in this area? Um, I'm actually not sure that we do buy anything from farmers in this area. Um, I guess dairy would be the closest thing. I think a lot of that is is happening in Quebec, if I'm not mistaken, for like Liberté business. Um, so I know we're really thinking hard about what does regenerative ag look like in dairies. Um, so potentially that, that would be something that we bring up uh, this way, but um, yeah, and unfortunately, uh, you know, we are like one of the world's biggest food companies, but we really don't have that large of a footprint um, when you actually look at it. And so, um, you know, like oats uh, is one of our biggest purchases, and that's like one of the most minor crops there is out there. Um, so I think, you know, part of what we're trying to do is, is engage the broader industry and trying to change how the, the food and ag industries work and, um, we have a lot of what I do too is like uh, outreach and engagement and education to like our suppliers and the folks that actually touch like massive, uh, have a huge land footprint, um, trying to influence them because we can only really do so much with our own footprint. Yeah, so how does, how does work fit in with some of our other uh, sustainability commitments? Um, so, you know, the regenerative ag one and greenhouse gas one I talked about, but um, there's also a sustainable sourcing commitment. So that first one, the 2020 commitment, that was to sustainably source our top uh, 10 priority ingredients by 2020. And um, what I say is I, I think regenerative ag is, you know, as we look beyond 2020, that regenerative ag is really where we're going to be going. And so... Sustainable, like sustainable sourcing, like this, this idea is throughout the food industry. Like this is like a well-adopted thing with like field to market, uh, the field print initiative. Um, this is what a lot of food companies are doing is basically collecting information from farmers, modeling their outputs. Um, and if they see in c continuous improvement in like greenhouse gas reduction, uh, land use efficiency, nutrient use efficiency, some of these metrics, continuous improvement is the threshold for being defined as sustainably sourced. And so um, I think, you know, the, the evolution of that is really regenerative. Like, we, we need to not just become more efficient, but we need to make things better, and that's really post-2020. Yeah. But why continuous improvement if someone is already at the bar, right, where they are sustainable? And yet, like, really you're starting at bottom and looking for continuous improvement as opposed to starting at the yeah, I mean, it's, well, I guess the, even with regenerative, there's not really, like, a point at which you can say, like, okay, you're there. Like, it's a, it's a process, and it's, like, a journey of, like, you know, changing your farm, right? I, I wouldn't say anybody is, and ev even if you talk to, like, the most progressive farmer, I don't think any of them would say, like, we are at the point that we wanted to be at. Like, you know, there's always sort of, like, what's next and keep moving forward, and, um, I don't think that really applies to, to most of what's out there today, especially on the efficiency side. I mean, when we were talking about efficiencies, there's just looking at like what practices farmers are using in our supply chains, there's a ton of room for improvement. Um, so, yeah. In terms of using satellite imagery to figure out or use that as a, a way to measure or direct uh, best practices, mm -hmm. making sure that 
Yeah, I know at least in the U.S., um, you know, we have lots of conservation programs in the U.S., and a lot of them are, their whole goal is to improve cover crop adoption, right? So we have like EQIP, we have like CESP, like all these different things. Um, and I think to measure the efficiency or the, uh, how effective those programs are, it's really just been like surveys like the U.S. Census, but we lose a lot of granularity in like what's happening on the landscape. Um, with, and that's all farmer self-reported data, so you don't really know how trustworthy it actually is. And so with satellites, I just think it improves um, how certain we are that these practices are actually being adopted, like how effective a subsidy like that would be. Um, also, like, you know, over time, we, we get a lot better temporal resolution where we can see, like, you know, year to year really what's happening um, and in what targeted areas. Like maybe there's a hot spot of adoption here but not here, and that subsidy is being applied to both. I think really where we take it to the next level is like, okay, why are these folks adopting and these folks aren't? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of questions we can probe at this satellite imagery to really understand what's happening on the landscape. But um, we can be more certain in it, and I think it's a lot cheaper than trying to do a lot of surveys. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a covariate in our, all of our stats that we do. So, like, you know, when we take meter-deep soil carbon cores, um, we're going to look at, you know, we're going to divide those out by horizons so we can see, like, what soil type is. We're going to do soil texture within each of those horizons so we can try to account for these inherent properties that farmers, you know, are stuck with. They can't change. Um, so we have to know how these practices are going to change or are going to affect these outcomes on different soils, right, in different regions. And so that's going to be part of it. Um, a lot for, for a lot of like the larger like satellite imagery type analysis, we have to rely on publicly available soil survey information. So like the Sergo database, you know, you can get a map of like what soil type is, is at this geographic point in space. It's not always right and it's very rarely right, um, which is why you have to do some soil sampling, but um, that's a good start at least. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should yeah. this short yeah, sure. because we've got a whole other section. Yeah. So today we have a panel discussion. Um, we're talking with Cameron and, and colleagues at GFO. I've been speaking with Cameron uh, for a few months here now. And uh, this next session is going to be a panel discussion. Uh, so we're lucky enough to have a, a great panel that's agreed to, to come here and, and fill us in on kind of their respective roles within the egg industry and really how sustainability um, how the supply chain works and really get a good round view of, of, of everything. So, you know, we had a nice presentation to start off um, on regenerative agriculture. I think there was a lot of
great concepts that were discussed. I think there's a lot of similarities with what we do here already. I think Dan can probably attest to that with some of the practices he does. And, you know, regenerative agriculture, I'm not sure, you know, when I think of that, I don't really know what I define it as. Um, but I think there's some key principles that were included in that matrix of, of five key, you know, practices that I think, generally speaking, as an egg industry, you know, we're all trying to focus on doing, some of which livestock may be a bit harder in certain areas than others. But So I wanted to kick off this panel discussion with a brief introduction um, by each panelist. I'm not going to uh, introduce you because I don't want to miss anything mm -hmm. that may be important. So if you want to just briefly introduce yourself, kind of what your role is in the egg industry, and uh, a, a brief background about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Dan Petker. I farm with my dad. We farm roughly 3,000 acres in a little county called Norfolk. So that would be an hour and a half that way, right on the North Shore of Lake Erie. So I go swimming every night. It's a five minute walk to the beach. Um, I did not go to ag school. I went to culinary school. So I took Vietnamese food for 10 years because I hated the farm. Uh, I came back because of issues. And um, so yeah, I've been there now for 12, 13, 14 years. I'm blessed to have a father who uh, fully supports going forward and trying new things. So <clears throat> we adopted no-till ages ago. Who cares? Like that's who really cares about no-till anymore? <laughs> um, <laughs> it shouldn't just be standard anymore. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Like we're passionate about it, but it's just that standard practice where it should be. Um, we adopted strip till about four years ago for our corn. Um, tillage has its place. Uh, I have to be careful because I'll just start going off. So, um, <laughs> we raise corn, soybeans, wheat, hay, and a cat, and a three-year-old son. Um, I can go off. So you guys just ask me stuff. We'll, You're uh, quite involved as well. Um, some of the different committees. Oh yeah, I guess uh, yeah. So I'm part of like I'm on the directors board for Innovative Farmers of Ontario, which is to me the premier kind of group for Ontario Ag for forward-thinking individuals. Um, President of our local soil and crop. Uh, I'm part of this, which is very cool. Um, so yeah. you're quite involved in a lot of different things in kind of the space of soil health yep. and, and working on practices. So yeah. Well, great to have Dan with us here. We're gonna move along. We have a good yeah, introduction. You know of, what I do? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Steve. So we're gonna move on to Amber Holland. Uh, if you can introduce Anne her. Amber Holland. Ann Loeffler. <laughs> my apologies. Okay. Uh, I'm a Conservation Specialist with Grand River Conservation Authority. Now for those of you outside the province, you're not familiar with conservation authorities. Basically in Ontario, we have a system where all of the municipalities in a certain watershed have representatives that on a board of directors that runs a given <coughs> conservation authority for that watershed. So uh, cons what a lot of people don't realize is that conservation authorities are completely run by the municipalities really. I work with farmers on a voluntary program where we try to encourage them to adopt practices that will improve soil health and improve water quality. And uh, one of my special challenges is that I work with a lot of the more conservative um, cultural groups in Ontario that have some resistance to trying some new practices. Uh, Paul Johnston. Um, been married uh, happily for 30 years and I have uh, two children, one of which works in agriculture as well. Uh, spent uh, slightly over that uh, in, in years in the egg business 
Uh, it's been a very interesting, uh, um, fulfilling 30 years, and I think we've seen more um, advancement in agriculture, both technology and, and social impact in the last five years that we've seen in the first 25. Uh, graduate of uh, University of Guelph, uh, Bachelor of Science in Agriculture, and uh, I now manage our crop input business for Thompson's Limited, which is a business uh, located in, uh, in Blenheim in southwestern Ontario. Uh, we were the first uh, facility in Ontario to uh, be 4R certified, and the 4R principles really is, is uh, made up of the same components as we talked about when we talked about sustainability and, and regenerative agriculture. So. I'm Jim Barkley. I'm a crop retail manager at Hensel Co-op. We're a, a large independent uh, co-op uh, located uh, about an hour north of Hensel. Uh, we do we're member owned, so our members own us. Uh, we were into feed, fuel. Uh, we have a logistics business and commercial grains, seed, fertilizer, chemical. We're a large uh, food grade uh, exporter, so we do uh, about 14 different market classes of edible beans and a uh, large amount of uh, food grade soybeans. So quite involved in the in the field to fork, working with end users on food grade. So my role at the co-op has been, uh, I've been there 20, this is my 26th season, most challenging one, getting the crop planted, hopefully not harvested, but um, so I've, I've uh, uh, kind of worked up through being consulting with growers in the early years as a sales rep and uh, more recently the last bunch of years doing purchasing crop inputs as well as uh, work with the origination team, getting the acres contracted with growers to uh, to get delivered into our location to process, to ship to the various different countries that we ship to. So that's my background. Well, great, thank you, everyone. So we have a pretty good, diverse group of speakers here today. We have people that are directly growing product. We have people that are procuring product, um, working with farmers as well as, as selling to customers, and then we have the kind of that end user buyer perspective and then the conservation area group. So what I wanna do is start off by asking the question of, you know, what does sustainability mean to you in your individual role and um, and in your organization, I guess? Um, you know, we heard a great talk uh, from General Mills about regenerative egg. There are many companies here in Ontario that are purchasing uh, commodities from Ontario grain farmers as well as Ontario companies, um, you know, groups like uh, Mondelez, Unilever, Kellogg's, you know, there's a large number of, of companies that are in the marketplace and each one has a different spin on maybe what sustainability means. So I think it'd be great if the group could just summarize what sustainability means to, to, to you in your respective roles. Are we just gonna keep going? Yeah, yeah, if we oh, could just okay. go move, <laughs> sure. move, move down the line. Um, that would work I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, like a lot of these talks or when I, I go to these things or these messages, it's always sustainability, sustainability of the soil. It's never about my bank book. Um, I'm carrying about $3 million worth of debt right now and I'm gonna buy another million and a half in two months. Um, I gotta be sustainable for the next, you know, well, until I'm dead. Uh, so it's, when, I, when I'm chasing my soil sustainability, which I firmly believe because the original goal was to stop my soils from washing and blowing away. So I just started baby steps. You know, you put oats out there, you put stuff. Um, that cost me money. So now I'm just adding to my overhead without, what, we're probably five years into our, our transition, 
quest or whatever you want to call <laughs> it. And I've lost money every year. So when I have to recoup the loss, I still make up some sort of ROI to keep the farm going so I can make my payments and you know, have a life and go to Florida or wherever I want to go, Portugal. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what it is. I really don't know. Just farm health includes bank health. Mm. And trying to balance that, I guess. Yeah, is that, yeah is that's that accurate? the key. But I lean towards economic health first and foremost because if I don't have the money to do these things, the next guy who's gonna take my farm over probably won't care. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect answer. I mean, I think sustainability yeah, for too long has mostly focused on just driving efficiencies and not really explicitly focusing on farmer profitability and farmer economic resilience and just being able to be on the land for long periods of time. And I think that's really why we are starting to phase out sustainability as a concept and really talk about regeneration or regenerative ag, which is more holistic. And it is these pillars of soil health, biodiversity, and farmer profitability, and that's like, you know, a huge focus now for us because we've realized, you know, we can't be a food company without profitable, resilient farmers. Like that is the basis of our supply chain, our entire business. If I could just add a, a quick comment, like your slide where you had the stakeholders. Yeah. Nowhere on there did you have farmers. Right. That should be the first one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I, I, you know, unfortunately, looking at the food industry as a whole, I guess which is what that slide was trying to represent, um, farmers' voices aren't really elevated in the conversations for how food companies make decisions. And we do now a lot of uh, talks with farmers. We, we invite farmers in and talk to us. And one thing we've heard recently is like, you are selling our food, right? Like, like it's the farmer's food and you are just putting like your name on it, right? We have a lot more responsibility to the farmer to know to make sure that their values and, and what they put into it is carried all the way through to the end so I think we, we have a lot of work to do in that space hopefully I can put the, the <laughs> farmers up there like and say this is now a, a big part of what food industry pay attention to but they've always been your stakeholders right one of right. the farmers right it always has been yeah yeah um, and so just yeah getting back to the question about sustainability I think it's got to focus on making things better and regeneration and that includes farmer economics and So I'm going to talk about that same slide for a second too. You had the consumers as a stakeholder. When we as a conservation authority think of the consumer, we, we're more likely to call them the downstream water user. And to take a step back, and the, the Grand River is an amazing river here. It's unique in this part of Ontario because it's the only major river that actually provides drinking water for over half a million people um, directly from the river. Okay. All, all the other large, or all the large cities in Ontario get their drinking water from the Great Lakes. There's lots of water there. But the Grand River supports drinking water for Cambridge, Kitchener, uh, Waterloo, all of Brantford, Six Nations. Um, so we have a program where the municipalities have realized that, okay, it's actually cheaper to help people, to help farmers <coughs> keep the soil and the nutrients on the land where they need it, rather than to try to take it out of the water once it gets to the water intake pipe. And uh, so this consumer that we're talking about not only consumes the, the beans or the oats or the, the uh, whatever's getting grown, but also drinks the, um, consumes the drinking water. So anyway, we have this system here now, the stewardship programs where 
the downstream municipalities actually provide us with funds that we can then share. Unfortunately, not with Dan because Dan's not in our watershed. <laughs> but with 80% uh, of our watershed is in agriculture, and we know that the only way we can keep the water clean enough in the Grand River to keep on providing drinking water is to work with the farming community and let them figure out how what practices they would like to implement to keep the soil on the land and the nutrients on the land where they need it. And the concept that I try to get across is that what's good for the farmer is also what's good for the downstream water user. So to me, sustainability would be uh, our farmers being able to continue to produce food and fiber in a way which uh, is, is as, as uh, what's the difference of leaky? We lose as little nutrients in soil as possible because it needs to stay on the land anyway, and it's what ho will hopefully pay for Dan's trip to Portugal, but will also <laughs> save money for the downstream water users when it comes to water treatment. Uh, sustain or regenerate is really to keep or to improve, and um, when I when I think of that, we're trying to keep our keep our land uh, as productive as possible. Uh, with, without uh, affecting uh, the, the environment or the environment affecting us. It, uh, it has an economic impact, as Dan mentioned. Uh, we, we all have to be profitable. Quite frankly, you all are here today, you all, you are here today uh, because of funding, right? Um, so we, we need money to keep this, uh, keep this cycle going. Um, as, as, like Jim, uh, our company does uh, sell edible bean products to 37 different countries in the world. And uh, we have to do a lot of things, um, not, not for the sake of the consumer always, it's for market access. And so we are, uh, have SQF uh, certification, safe quality food, and it's, it doesn't return us any more money at the end of the day, but it's market access. And, and so that's, that's the part of the profitability. There's also social impacts and that's, uh, Making sure that we are, uh, we have land to farm over the next uh, uh, several generations, and we again we don't want to impact the environmental environmental um, impacts. So. Yeah. Uh, some of the other comments I just want to add, like profitability is a, a big part of the sustainability. Everyone, all stakeholders, have to be profitable long term to keep it keep the process going. Uh, got to be able to be stable and be able to repeat year after year. Uh, I think risk management is a big part of sustainability. I know our different companies, you have to source in different, if you want to deal with a big food company, you have to source in different geographical areas to be able to spread your risk out to in case of something happening like a frost in Manitoba uh, or uh, flooding in Ontario. So. That's a risk management's got to be part of sustainability and as well a big part we feel is food traceability falls under that as well. So like most of the other comments were kind of hit. Yeah, so I think, you know, we can all agree that generally everyone has a similar, you know, idea of what sustainability means. Um, you know, it's, you know, from a GFO, Grain Farmers Ontario perspective, we, you know, see sustainability as our farmers being economically viable while maintaining our commitments to both the environment and society as a whole. So, you know, 
that's kind of the, the general theme. And I think everyone kind of touched on that in their own kind of unique way. And I think that really sets into me is that, you know, there isn't one coin definition that, that each person uh, uses as sustainability. And if I want to pick on people in the audience, I'm sure I could uh, find a different uh, example of what sustainability means. Laura, for example, what would it mean to you in, in your role? Um, you know, what do you see as sustainable? Yeah, uh, for me, I think it's um, the ability to maintain for many generations. So whether, whether that's in this context, it's food production and environmental quality. Mm -hmm. So generally, uh, you know, everyone's along the, the same line. So I want to get into a little bit more about kind of the supply chain aspect of it all, because obviously between Jim and uh, Paul, you guys and your both companies have a have a you know a, a stronghold. Obviously, working with the farmer members, but also working with uh, you know end users, uh, processors. And I wonder if you could maybe just briefly chat a, a bit about that and kind of um, you know how these relationship works. And when we look at um, you know the slide that was mentioned about the stakeholders and how the farmer wasn't uh, involved. You know, when I look at this, you know. It's as much a top-down approach as it is a bottom-up approach, and how do we really make it that bottom-up approach as well? That it's not just coming from from the top, and how do we make sure that it's workable for someone like Dan, who is obviously trying to you know make make an income, um, you know, for that trip to Portugal or or whatever it may be, while also maintaining some of these things that are you know of, of concern to all the supply chain stakeholders. So I don't know. I guess that was a kind of a, a question that could apply to everyone. So I don't know who, who would like to start off by yeah, by, by uh, answering that kind of comment. Yeah, I I can make a couple comments. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Comments on like from our side, kind of what I feel some of my role becomes sometimes is keeping an open mind to change because some of this is brand new. So uh, sometimes we're dealing with people that have done things for forty years. Uh, some aren't, as, uh, aren't going to adopt change as fast as others. So sometimes it's finding your conduit to, to change. It could be the next generation down. Uh, so sometimes it's uh, finding those conduits for things like that. Uh, coaching is a big part. So we feel, you know, sometimes we're the liaison between the grower and the end user. And uh, we have to uh, sometimes be like the parent or, or coach and work between because we understand the farmer's got to make money and we also understand the end user's got to make money so you have to work in between as well as uh, what Paul was saying about the uh, um, the SQF uh, the different various uh, audits that we have to go through uh, that uh, don't maybe it's just more market access versus uh, profitability centers there traceability so we do the food traceability for every acre that we grow, we have to know where it is, we have to map that, we have to track what fertilizers, chemicals go on that so that we can track, truly track from field to fork uh, each, each product that uh, is under that for food production for us. Uh, again, uh, we have an online system that we invented, like that we developed through that. We have over a million dollars invested into a food traceability program uh, that we don't charge farmers for for entering that data it's uh, or charge our end user for using that data um, 
And again, we're certified crop advisors, so we have to go through education uh, every two years. There's a, a number of courses that we have to take and uh, live live by that to uh, to uh, give advice to growers. We have kind of have uh, each each crop will have a production guidelines that we work within the production guidelines with our with our growers. All of that to continue to have sell year after year so and again for our practices are coming more um, into play with that too so it's kind of a start mm -hmm. no it's great yeah I we have uh, end users Kellogg for instance uh, we have a nine page survey that we uh, we have our growers fill out um, and it's it's a uh, Sorry, Steve, but sometimes the uh, the end users that uh, check the box on their uh, consumer report, and you know they the consumer is asking for it, so we're going to put it on our label. Um, but then there's a downstream effect of you know all that processing is required to be certified, and then the grower is required to be certified. And uh, like I said, there's there's oftentimes uh, you know I'm glad to hear that uh, General Mills is supporting their growers by helping them through a program. However, there's usually no incentive for the grower to do this. It's more market access. Um, so Jim's company, my company, we would, we would both have the same customer, uh, both required to have that uh, safe quality food uh, certification. Um, so it's, it's not really a difference, a differentiating uh, factor. Um, so I, I think that's, that's pretty key is uh, we don't want this to be just a Market entry. This is uh, this is something most uh, most farmers uh, really believe in, in keeping their land productive and, and healthy. Um, there are some large commercial producers that will, uh, you know, race over the land with uh, some large tillage, and they, they are not concerned about cover crops. But I think for the most part, growers want to make sure that uh, their their soil is in, in, in good shape to be productive. And quite frankly, uh, for our nutrient stewardship is, is a program that uh, we want to manage, especially the right rates of product. Um, and none of, none of our growers, none of my growers anyways, want to spend any more than they have to on that land. Um, they know what their yield goal is, and they're going to spend the appropriate amount of money. So no one's just dumping fertilizer on, on the ground or applying pesticides uh, without any requirement. It's, uh, there, there's intensive um, pest management programs that we monitor pest thresholds, and I think Dan even said, you know, are they at the economic threshold? Um, and, and fertility, we, we do extensive soil testing, we do precision applications, so we're applying the fertilizer where the crop is going to use it. And, and so that's, that to me is sustainability and, and uh, regenerative agriculture. Um, but I, I think the, the, the growers on the most part are, are, are doing their share. Um, we just need to get that story to the public because I, I heard in some of the preempt on this program you're offering here is the consumer wants to know where their food is coming from and how it's produced. And, and we can certainly tell the story. And you know, having a farmer that's a culinary expert, uh, he, he, he wants to cook what he produces. So uh, I think that's a good way to do it. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about the 4R. I uh, <coughs> forgot to mention earlier, I'm the Conservation Authority representative on the Provincial 4R uh, Committee, and I, so I've had a ringside seat basically to watching this program. 
being developed uh, in Ontario and the uh, impetus came from the Farm Group Centre for Fertiliser Canada. And I can honestly say that I've been so impressed by the commitment from, from the industry to make this program work. For, um, for a group like Thompson's to be for our certified requires an incredible investment in training and paperwork and uh, if there's a lot of extra profit in it for you, I don't know about that. I haven't seen any yet. <laughs> uh, that these, like the, um, basically the industry has taken on a lot of extra paperwork and training in order to make sure that the system is more transparent and has uh, can uh, has earned the trust, I guess, of, of the consumer downstream. And I have been so impressed by watching Fertilizer Canada and the industry develop this. It's been really great. And uh, so I'm hoping that with time we will see those uh, effects in our water courses and, and in the Lake Erie Basin. Um, Lake Erie, we've got some significant phosphorus problems, but phosphorus hangs around in our water courses and our sediment for decades. If we implement for our now, we can't expect to see an improvement next year or probably even next decade, because these are such long-term, such long-term problems. But I'm, I think the industry is really doing, they're really taking a huge step in trying to address this through for our. A couple of things. Uh, one, um, you mentioned about like you know certifications, how it's sort of it is like a big burden on the entire supply chain. Um, you know we asked all the time like is regenerative just going to be like another kind of check the box stamp certification and and it's like no like absolutely not like this is we don't want just to say like you are regenerative you are not like this product is um, you know regenerative because we've got a stamp on it um, it really is more about just like enabling this environment for farmers to figure out how to re restore their land and become more profitable it's like you know we're trying to create the enabling environment you can see we've done that largely to date through education and, and technical assistance, uh, which is free. There's no, we're not paying farmers to enter these programs, but like you said, like farmers want to be part of this. They, they want to learn how to become more profitable, improve their land. Like the demand is out there for programs like this. And um, I guess, uh, I guess I'm happy that we're not taking like a thou shalt not uh, stamp for our supply chain and rather we're just trying to kind of walk along with farmers as they're going down this path and trying to figure out uh, how to break down these barriers. So. Another piece on 4R is just, um, I think like there's so much work we still have to do and we still have, uh, we, we still hire agronomists to go out and um, work on variable rate technology with some of our farmers, um, you know, free soil testing for farmers in some of our supply regions to understand what nutrients are still there. Um, but I still think we have to, you know, if it's not, you know, maybe five R's and, and that fifth R is just like the right like system. Like we still have to focus on keeping soil in the field. We still have to focus on having something growing to hold those nutrients there in the soil at times when otherwise it'd be washing off or leaching. Those, those systems level um, pieces aren't currently a part of the four R conversation. And so even if the farmer is doing everything absolutely right, maximizing efficiency down to the meter level on their fertilizer, uh, on their um, like banding, for example, there's still going to be lost. There's a ceiling that we can only we can only push past through systems level change that we also have to think about. So, 
close it by ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was more or less about it kind of the top-down approach with you know you have the end user working right. with the, the various supply chain partners. Obviously, you being a farmer, you're the last line in the, the chain or first. Or first, yeah, how you yeah, look okay, at exactly. it. So, kind of maybe can you elaborate sure. a little bit on that um, perspective and what it means? I've got good and bad. So, Lisa grow boatloads of hand pick cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, like 100 acres of tomatoes, like romas, like your plump tomatoes, um, hot bananas, jalapenos, bells, and then pickled cucumbers, so you go to Harvey's or wherever. Um, that's all gone. What's hap what eventually happened would be, um, there was a top-down mandate to say, this is what we need you to do because this is what our user needs. But we're not gonna help you cover the cost. So eventually my margins went from here, which we were very lucrative, they went to this. And if I'm gonna farm like this, I'm gonna grow corn and beans because there's a lot less effort and I don't have 150 employees. So I got rid of those things. I've lost a pile of crop diversity. Now I'm just like everyone else in this big giant pile growing grain in the entire world. So I've lost any sort of niche that I have. Um, now when I call Hamilton Port, like the, the, the big water park here for selling my soybeans, I get the same price as everyone else because my soybeans the same thing. So the guy who's only shipping 15 kilometers away will be making a better margin than I am because I'm shipping 120. Um, to go find making special, I guess, like, like we're all looking for that. Uh, these are all noble endeavors, but we're just kind of, agriculture is dominated by very specific foods and it'll be like that forever because it's been that way forever. So grain, very specific vegetables, um, or oil seeds too. So I'm gonna try to jump on a bandwagon and say, oh, we're gonna try growing winter canola. It should be getting planted today, but it got wet. So if I can't do it by the weekend, it's done. But you know, does this world genuinely need more canola? No, not at all. But that's a niche here, so that helps I can kind of say to a processor like ADM and say that, you know what, I'm one of the few people that grows it here in Ontario, you don't have to buy it from out west. So I make a margin. All of a sudden the next guy sees that. He's gonna start doing it. And all of a sudden there again, all my margins are gone because it becomes a commodity. Um, these are great ideas, but like this kind of partnership thing. But eventually, General Mills will put a sticker on there. Maybe you guys won't, but other people will, and say this is Regen Ag supported, and they're going to charge five bucks more a box. It's like why you see that GMO-free garbage. They want to charge you more. It's not because they care about what you're eating, or well, maybe some people do. That's a careful brush. <laughs> um, but it's all economics. It's what drives it all. I don't know. I get excited. I, I, I sound down about it, but I'm not. It's just, there's a hard reality that we all have to constantly, constantly remember. Like, money drives all of this. Like, I take a, my, my regen approach, I take this extra cost as an acceptable cost of production increase. So, let's say when I grow corn and I intercede with things, where I sell, the ethanol plant doesn't care that I'm doing this, so they're not going to offer me a premium. You know, like, like the dog food company doesn't care, like Karina doesn't care that I have annual ryegrass growing in my cornfield right now. 
They don't care that I have red clover, beautiful red clover growing in my wheat. They don't care that I have oats growing in my soybeans already. Like it's just, there's certain people, like I'm in a position where I can take that on. So I add 10 bucks of cost reduction over across every acre per acre. So that's 30 grand every year that I'm willing to give up as income or as rather than reinvest into the business. The nice part is I can go walk around and I don't see any more gully erosion where my neighbor is washing away. I'll buy his farm eventually because he won't be able to sustain that. And maybe I won't be able to, who knows? That's just hope. I don't buy into that. Like you're I not truly seeing that, or is that something that you just see over? Because I mean, in principle, in the theory, right? You're keeping the soil. You should. It should become less leaky. You should be more efficient. Not have to apply as much fertilizer. All those things, but do you see that in practice? Do you mind if I rant a little bit? <laughs> well, yeah, right. This is more, just tell me to stop if it needs be, but it's just. My grandparents came from Russia. So when they came here, it would be full tillage, diverse crops, like so like they, they grew all the cool small grains, like which I love, like barley, oats, wheat, rye, like all the, the good like this stuff. And lots of small plots. And these things would always get rotated and then and hay, like a pasture would always be there. Um, those soils were vibrant and beautiful. Um, my grandfather said there's three things that were like the greatest kind of promotions or like the furthering of agriculture, and he would be uh, the tractor. So no more horses because we built a lot less labor on the farm. You could sell your grain rather than feed your grain. Um, hydraulics, so now you don't have to pick up things. You just pull a lever in, compression happens, and things go up and down. And then the third thing was nitrogen. Like we have, we live in a, we're two generations removed and we've completely forgot what it's like to have star soils that are starved for nitrogen. Like we don't understand what growing 140, well, 140, let's say 80 bushel corn is year after year after year. Like wheat used to be amazing. Like we could raise a 20 bushel wheat crop. Like now if I go put spend 120 bucks, I'm raising 150 bushel wheat. I cripple my return. Um, I don't think our soil, well, soils don't care what we want to produce out of it. Nature doesn't care, well, not, to, well, I guess we can anthropomorphize it, but um, it's just doing its thing. It doesn't care if I can raise 20 ton an acre of peppers, or that I need to, or 250 bushel corn. Anyway. There's a question in the back. <laughs> Wondering, you know, to me that's a bit shocking. 
stab at it and just say uh, there's always cross sections like you have your your you get some situations where you have somebody that's grown soybeans on soybeans on soybeans for 10 12 years that's not necessarily what I would call sustainable and maybe the soil is a bit broken but you get into certain it, we, we do uh, do do a lot of crop rotation maybe in my general area where I'm from, we have a lot of different crop mixes because we do a lot of winter wheat following edible beans or soybeans. Uh, we stick to our rotation, so we have a pretty good balance. We are, uh, you know, we are introducing a lot more cover crops. We have a lot more diversity than we had uh, even 10 years ago. Uh, so things are changing. Uh, I think, uh, I don't think things are totally broken, but there's always continuous work on. I think that's a, just my opinion. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, you know, you've got your desert landscape right to your rainforest and the deserts, uh, a lot of those uh, environments were, were created from continuous tillage and, and, and removal of all the material from that land. So I don't think we're at that point. Um, however, you, we have some soils that are at risk and you see some of the uh, erosion in some of those soils where there isn't uh, the soil stability. You see ponding where the the aggregates are, are bound together. You don't uh, you don't have a real good soil tilt, and and so I, I think we're at risk in a lot of soils. Um, and you know livestock is decreasing, or um, we don't have the 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 cattle, sheep, and, and uh, that to to have the pastures in our in our um, rotation. You know, when you think about organics, organics, you think of organics as being the answer to all of this. We have an organics division and we can, we can stack hands on whether we agree to buy organics at the grocery store or not, but it's a choice for growers as well as consumers. And uh, one thing about organics is they don't have the pesticides to control weeds and so they're relying on tillage. So some of that ground is tilled many, many times even in crop. And so we're actually degrading that soil through an organic system, which we would think is, is a healthy system, but it's, it's not. So now they're looking at things like uh, no tillage, no, no till in organics. So I don't, I don't think we're at a, a crucial, but I think if we don't act now, then, then we could uh, get into tr trouble on some of those lands where we rotate beans with soybeans with beans. And uh, you know that, that's a risk. So I, I guess kind of following up on some of all all of what's being talked about here, Dan talking about like he's uh, he I guess he saw his soils were at risk and so he he made some decisions to change that and it's cost him. Um, there are some programs through conservation authorities and through um, uh, through Ontario Soil and Crop that he can tap into to get some cost sharing, but it doesn't necessarily make up the margin. Um, so and and Steve, I guess kind of regenerative ag optimistically is hoping that not only can you regenerate the soil, but regenerate a bit of that margin too. Um, yeah, I'd love to see you two dialogue a bit on, you know, is, is that just optimism or like- Well, optimism is key. 
Like, if you, if you have no hope, why even bother doing anything? Is it realistic? Oh, who cares about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or is, that, is that enough for General Mills? Does General Mills need to be doing more other than just uh, hoping that just yeah. regenerative practices are enough to regenerate right. the Right, I mean, this is, this, is exactly, this is exactly the conversation I want to have. I'm really happy, well, not happy, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, really, um, I really like feedback like this. Like, you know, the, is the theory of regenerative agriculture true in practice? And I've seen it work in practice, and I've also seen it definitely not work in practice. And um, I think we have to figure out what is the nature of that, and, and why are some farmers seemingly wildly successful with it, and why are some farmers really just not uh, successful with it? I think, you know, is there more we can do? I think there's, there's only so much we can do. I think the ecosystem services market is a piece of that, and like figuring out how to pay farmers, like I think that is essential, but you know, we, General Mills, or like the food industry, like all this, we can't just dial up how much how much like we purchase commodities for, for example. Like the commodity market is not gonna reflect necessarily the value that farmers are generating through these sorts of practices, right? So I think we have to, you know, we have to come up with some solution. I personally hope that it's regenerative agriculture because it makes a lot of sense intuitively, but also just from the environmental challenges in addition to the economic challenges that we have, like requires change. To your point about like, is the system broken? I think we have tons of evidence that the system is broken. Not, not like, you know, at the level of a farm scale, like potentially your nutrient cycle, your um, carbon cycle, maybe you, it's working fine on your level, but when you zoom out to the landscape scale, we see mass extinctions, we see like dead zones the size of entire states in the Gulf of Mexico, we see uh, tons of issues. Um, you know, I think that's evidence that what we're doing now isn't enough and that we have to do something more. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think we can just sort of sit back and say everything's fine necessarily, but, um, I, you know, I really am interested in the nature of agricultural economics and what, like, what is that? What is that lever that we can pull to, to make to make it work? Okay, um, I'll talk about what we're doing on the farm. Uh, so in Ontario, okay. First of all, like, this is what I I wanted to ask you guys a question, or like, what is your background, or like, where are you guys coming from? Are you coming from farm to go back to farm? Are you staying in like soil research, like lab space, or what's the kind of general? If you don't mind, just shouting out too. What do, you guys see, what do you guys see yourselves doing in like three years out when you're done, 10 years? <laughs> like farm consultants, environmental consulting, but yeah. whether it's in soils or just broader issues of whatever sustainability, sure. the amorphous term of that is yeah. something that I don't personally come from a farming background. I grew up in suburbia. Cool. I would say also going to NGOs is probably a spot I might end up. Agricultural, though. Yeah, not So what we're doing for Regen, because I, I want to believe in it, but I'm a firm believer of science and data. Uh, so the easiest one here in, in Ontario is you grow red clover in your wheat, you get free nitrogen. You don't get the nitrogen for your crop until the plant dies though, so you got to kill it. I have clover right now that is that tall. Like, so just above my knee, there's pr like 
I'll go do like a biomass way off and stuff. But like, how do you deal with that? Like just on a mechanical and a physical way. So I rely on, I don't want to plow it. My neighbor asked me for a plow, so I found him one. He's gonna go fill his that way. I will go spray with dicamba and glyphosate in about six weeks. Um, what, what you do to help kind of make this work, though, like just for the physical act of planting a corn crop, so we make a little strip in there now, or we just did it about a month ago. Um, that soil is now <coughs> fragile and it's subject to loss. So right away we come back, we plant buckwheat in there. Buckwheat's kind of cool because there's anecdotal evidence, and a, there's a couple of research papers that, who knows how good they are to, I don't know. Um, buckwheat will kind of free up phosphorus out of your soil profile and make it available. So that's good and bad because it's all going to be available come November, and I get a lot of rain and all those things go away. So now I have to have a living plant there. So the clover will take some, like where I haven't stripped it, but oops, I killed my, all my clover because I have to be able to get on the farm in time in spring. So now what I've done is I plant winter barley or celia rye into the strip with the buckwheat. <coughs> so as the buckwheat dies, these living grasses should hopefully, in theory, take this stuff up. I go kill it in the springtime, and then as that rots, my corn plants can keep it. Um, now, will that be enough night of phosphorus for me to reduce how much math I use, like so fertilizer? Um, could I reduce my fertilizer bill by 25 bucks an acre? That would be amazing. Um, but the, where I do reduce my fertilizer bill in this system would be I get end credit for my wheat or for the red clover. Uh, we, I have trials right now in my field. I do it every year. We grow 400 acres of this clover, and every year there's 50 acres of randomized side-by-sides to, I just reduce my end rate down to zero, and then I go plus. So let's say my average is I got to go put 180 actual pounds of nitrogen down. I'll go all the way down to zero on about 40 pound increments, but then I go up. I go up to about 320 pounds just to see where that system is really gonna be. And then I take all my soil health tests everywhere I go with those. And the cool thing is I have higher CO2 and, and bacterial life the more nitrogen I put into the system. Because I just gave them cocaine and they just went bonkers. So there is a limit to too much because now they're consuming that carbon like crazy that I'm trying to store. But carbon is a cyclical thing. Like you put it in so that you can use it later. And that's where I really see it. I don't really buy in like we're removing pounds and pounds and pounds of actual nutrients and somehow you have to put it back in there. Like yes, there is a lot of unavailable stuff, but we don't have the tools to make that available. Um, so if I buy manure, I'm just taking it from somebody else's place. So I'm mining their farm. If I go buy potash, well, I'm taking it from Saskatchewan or from Florida. Like it's it's this balance and cycle and like there is hope though because agriculture every decade has gotten better. It's gonna get better. It's gonna be amazing. Like my dad, he's 72. He loves promoting this stuff, and like this spring, he's planted his 60th corn crop. <laughs> and he's like, I want to do another 40. Because it's going to be amazing in 40 years. It's going to be absolutely astounding what it's going to be like when we're all that age. Um, so Question. farmers and the ag industry just face so many, so many issues with um, loss of land, increase of, of um, like increase of price of crop inputs, and, and decrease in pricing of when you go to the so many issues that farmers are dealing with and it just gets more complicated as the years go on. Um, you know, if, if everything kind of stays the way it is and continues to go the way it is, in my 
personal opinion or any, anybody's opinion, one can argue that high yield is the way to stay in Kickstarter. High yield, you know, you get bigger margins. It's going to feed the growing population with less with less land available. And I just kind of wonder how regenerative agriculture plays into that. I think regenerative ag is trying to take the conversation from maximizing yield to maximizing profit. I think the ag industry till now has been like yield, 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 yield is going to solve all the problems, yield is going to feed the world. Um, I think that's like totally not where the conversation needs to be. I think, you know, if we waste like a third of the food that we produce, I, I wouldn't try to dial up the amount of actual food that we're producing, at least in this region. Like smallholder farmers, yes, like, okay, yield can be part of the solution. Here, I think it's like, how do we maximize return? In your experiments, like, you're probably not saying, oh, this wheat crop had the highest yield. This is the amount of N I'm going to put oh, on. Oh, no, I farm ROI. I right, definitely exactly. farm ROI. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, you're trying to dial in where where am I going to get the maximum profit? And that might be less yield. And I think that's right where we got to be. It's a hard concept for growers to get that in. Like, yeah. Because we have been coached or trained that way. Um, but if you all of a sudden say on a global scale, you know, Ukrainian grasslands, wheat, we, we need less wheat grown everywhere, we need less corn grown everywhere so farmers can have, well basically you're saying, we're going to restrict supply so people can't eat as much so that farmers get paid more. That's what that conversation is right now. It's fix the supply chain, why is it all getting thrown away? Like I just cleaned my fridge out yesterday, and I was like, somebody had this broccoli back there, gone because it's Latin. There's my mushrooms I went bad, gone. Like, train the consumer how to be a better consumer, which is all of us, and then all of a sudden, the weight chain, the weight kind of has to get smaller. Like it behooves us, just not on the on the production side, but on the other side of it too. <laughs> like, and we already produce enough food to feed like over 10 billion people, so it's not the food production side that has to ramp up, it's, it's other parts of the system. Like we all know like the, the balance. The ROI is so important, but they're all farmers. You also have to have in the back of your mind that's part of the sustainability. Is what are you like? What's your soil bank account? Like you could crank the nitrogen out, but you still got to remember what what it takes to grow the crop, and then what the P and K, and what are the other balances there. So there there is, you know, that's part of that four R's and everything. But it is a it's a balance between farming for future years or future crop rotations. It is a cycle, right? So you, it is, it's ROI, but sometimes it's also balancing. Yeah, balancing but also too, I think this is where the science has to evolve a bit. I mean, there's farmers, I think there's farmers that are way out ahead of where the science is on this in some ways, because there's farmers that in theory should be mining, just if you look at it on a, on a balanced perspective, based on what we assume is happening with microbial community and like free living nitrogen fixation. But if you actually track their soil over time, they're not mining anything. They're like re they're building up their organic matter pool, and they're doing that with like less and less fertilizer. So there's a science gap I think that exists there where we like don't really know exactly what's going on. I mean, there's huge amounts of like phosphorus and uh, potassium and these things in the soil that are m vast majority of it's unavailable. But I think farmers do have tools to make it available, and those tools are roots and plants and fungi and bacteria. But I also think we have to wrap our heads around like free living nitrogen fixing bacteria and like what is the potential for those to like uh, fix tons of nitrogen. Um, 
you know, I think we have to learn from these farmers that are doing it and not mining and figure out what is going on because that's a huge gap in the science right now. Yeah. I, I think we need to maintain those higher yields to, to feed that growing population, but we need nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but those can come from organic matter. Um, there are nitrosinoma bacteria in the soil that, you know, release, help release nitrogen. So there, I think the healthy soils uh, and, you know, healthy soils is really microorganisms, organic matter, lots of air, that's a healthy soil. They will generate the nutrients that are there. Um, and, and so I don't think it's all about commercial fertilizer, just pumping it up, but, you know, nitrogen is key, as Dan said, and, but it can come, uh, it's, our air we breathe is 80% nitrogen, so if we can extract that from the air, then that, that'll help our crop soil. Does that answer your question? Is there any further questions? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're talking a lot about like economics of farming and how that's like kind of the bottom line to a lot of farming, your, your return on investment. So I'm just curious to know <coughs> what you guys think of, um, just you can think as abstract as you want, but what would be like your, what would incentivize you to actually like do this regeneration, like agriculture, like what would you really want if you could ask like a conservation authority or General Mills, just I'll do finance. I think uh, funding that's more than like a one year thing helps, <coughs> helps the people that are willing to put the effort in for cover crops or different things. I, I think over the years there's been some, uh, some really good efforts put in when there's uh, like grass waterways were more popular today, um, but there was a good effort put forth with funding that supported people for doing the right thing. I, I think same thing in some of the U.S. states, they have monies that goes back to farmers that will, that will put in like uh, add something like uh, uh, Agritain to your 28%, you get a rebate back from the, from the uh, uh, whoever, the government or whoever. Uh, there's there's uh, ESN that you could mix in with urea, but there's a cost to doing that on your own where some of that funding could go towards things like that. So yeah. Funding isn't the answer to everything, but it helps pay. It's a give and take, right? We have precision tools we can use. 10% of every farm, every field is um, unprofitable. And because we're applying more nutrients than what the yield is, that, that grain is taken out. So 10%, if we could take that acre and not plant it, which is a really hard concept for anyone to do, is they're, they're paying rent and paying mortgage on it, and they're not planting it. My God, I'm sick, right? But if you can, you could raise your overall profitability of that field, of that farm, um, by not planting that. But I think we need some, some long-term cover crop, long-term or long-term cover um, to, and that needs, to this long-term funding to take that land out of production, and, and that you know that that can help for overall productivity of, of each farm. And that's exactly where we would like to go. We're not quite sure how to get there. We're kicking around some ideas, but we're hoping that we can support some field, field profitability mapping because where the conservation authorities would come in would hopefully to be to establish the those parts of the farm where you are losing money every year. Into either permanent cover such as grasslands or wetlands or or trees, um, but 
Our current programs provide per acre incentives for three years. Probably not enough, right? But that's, that's certainly the way we need to go instead of ma looking at maximum yield or ROI. I would second all of that. In addition, I guess um, I would say we need a lot more science. Um, you know, there's so much we don't know about soil, about you know, farmer economics. I think all these things are research questions that need tons of, of uh, effort to, to understand and solve. I hope for a time where I don't need funding. <laughs> I don't want to have to apply for a grant. I got desperately hope for that. Because right now I have to lie on the form. Because I'm already doing some of these things. And the way a lot of these government programs, especially in Ontario, are, are, are designed are for the people who have not adopted any practice. And those of us who have already made the expense, we would like some recoup. Because now, people are coming to me or to Woody Van Arkel, like there's some tillers in this, in this province. And we've done all this legwork. And now everybody else gets to capitalize on it. Like farmer life. So, want that part to go away. The science will tell us, like, there's lots of claims, like I went and, like, Jason Mock is a friend of mine, so follow him on Twitter, he's a lunatic. Um, but he thinks, right, like he's thinking, like, just, just thinks. And, uh, you know, he's doing it on his own, he's got resources that I don't have, I have no pigs, I have no livestock, I have no desire to ever have livestock. I like raising plants. Um, but if the science can say that some of these plants can do some of these things, then that's what I need. Because then I'll adapt it, or adopt it, adapt it, and maximize it. Um, but funding has to, we gotta get rid of that crutch somehow. There's a question in the back. Yeah, so, um, yeah, shall I explain to all this, and then, yeah, with my personal experience, you know, working as a, a poor agronomist with farmers, I know the resistance that comes with some of these issues and all that because anytime you talk about some of these things, the question you get is, you know, how's my profit going to be? How's my bottom line? That's what it comes down to. So then, you know, I'm asking here that, you know, should some of these talks, you know, be focused on, you know, maybe um, on the consumers, making the consumers aware of what they are eating and then, you know, kind of effecting the change so that you know, if they know this is what we are buying and this is how much we are spending on it, that could then lead to a change you know, in a farmer. Because at the end of the day, like you know, our farmer said, you know, if you know, his crop you know, he produces maybe 20 bushels and that guy is producing 50, he goes to the market and the price is the same. So at the end of the day, he takes the hit. So what's going to be you know, the motivation for him to do that? So I'm kind of wondering if the change should rather start from the consumers, making them aware so that you know, we focus more of the um, talking, maybe, yeah. Yeah, we, that's, I mean, we have a whole team of people that are like, we did like a focus group with consumers and you know, we talked about soil health, we talked about farmers and economics, we talked about lots of stuff, I mean, their minds were completely blown. Like consumers just have no idea. No conception. No, no like no. no idea what happens on farms. And and like that's why, you know, I mentioned in my talk, like this is all a solution to a problem that consumers have no idea exists. 
And we have to start somewhere with them, and that journey is like starting now, and we're trying to figure out, you know, General Mills has all these brands, right? Like you don't buy a General Mills product, you buy like Cheerios or Nature Valley. We have to figure out how we make their brand and their consumer, because there's no two consumers alike. There's no such thing as the consumer. Um, we have to figure out what the consumer for each of those products and the different types of consumers, what gets them to resonate with what Dan's doing. So like, um, that is a long journey and like, uh, it's gonna take tons of resources and time to figure out what that educational process should be. And then also to get it out there. I think one thing that's helping, that's interesting, is that like the presidential candidates actually in the US have been talking about how we need cover crops, how we need regenerative agriculture, how like these things are really important. I think that if it becomes part of mainstream conversation, uh, especially as it relates to fighting climate change, some of these things, um, then it helps us on that journey. But right now, if you said, this is a regenerative product, it costs $2 more, there's a tiny sliver of people that would ever even know what that means, yep. um, let alone want to buy it. So um, yeah, we're, we gotta, we're on a journey there as well. I think in the nature of time, we're gonna have to cut things off here, but uh, definitely appreciate all the questions and uh, wanna thank the panel for joining us here today. I think uh, you know we had a great discussion. I think there were a lot of key points that were mentioned. A lot of things that were kind of repeating themes, I think. so. You know, everyone will probably take back something different from their uh, respective viewpoints to their uh, their roles, uh, their research, that sort of thing. But uh, please join me in a round of applause for the panelists. To find out more about the Soils at Guelph initiative, visit soilsatguelph.ca and follow us on Twitter at soilsatguelph. For more on the Create Climate Smart Soils program, visit smartsoils.ca and follow them on Twitter at smartsoils. And for more on grain farmers of Ontario, visit gfo.ca and follow them on Twitter at grain farmers. My name is Cameron Ogilvie, Outreach and Communications Coordinator for the Soils at Guelph Initiative. Thanks for listening.